Hi, and welcome to the Pandemic Show. It's Dave, and today I'm talking with Eric Jeffrey. Eric started off the pandemic with his wife and three kids in Sudan and in March, and now they're back in New Zealand. So today we're going to hear what that was like. How are you today, Eric? Hey, Dave. I'm doing good. The boys are at school at the dining room table with uh, their mum, and <laughs> I'm having a break from being a teacher on the computer and a teacher at the dining table and get to chat with you. It's pretty cool. Well, your story is fascinating. And I'm really looking forward to hearing about what it was like during the pandemic in Sudan and then your adventures to get back home to New Zealand. Yeah, it was, was um, yeah, ba basically, you know, we've, we've been healthy and well the whole time, but we've had to process a lot of stuff we never thought we would have to. Yeah. <laughs> what do you want to hear about first? So it's, it's March, you're in Sudan, you're with your wife and kids. I know we're starting to get word over here in Ontario, Canada, that this coronavirus 19 is coming down and they're starting to talk, have talks about lockdowns and shutting down the schools. So what happened, what happened in Sudan? I know that St. Patrick's Day didn't really happen this year in Ontario because of quarantine, social distancing, and, and self-isolation. Yeah, well, in, in Sudan, we were, my wife and I were teaching at an international school. And so we were kind of living the, the typical lifestyle of school and work and the kind of general academic year that most schools would have. And we'd heard about COVID-19 hitting, hitting the world, but it didn't really, it hadn't affected Sudan at all and certainly no one in our community. And then all of a sudden, March break came along. And so we went on this camping trip out into the desert of Northern Africa to see all the ancient pyramids and along the Nile River Valley and kind of get away from it all. And when we turned our phones and internet back on, when we got back to the city of, that we were working in, it was just like the world had blown up and the airports had been closed in Sudan. So there was no one flying in and out. The school had been closed and we were, you know, asked to teach online, even though no one had really done that before. And yeah, it was a bit of a, a wild adventure to kind of, you know, we came out of the desert of Sudan and back into the city of Khartoum and just felt that everything had really blown up and gone crazy. It was kind of eerie. Things had changed just overnight. Well, it had obviously taken a week, but we were, you know, we were in the desert. We, we had no idea. It was like something out of a movie. And I know here in Ontario, one of the major concerns immediately was a shortage of personal protective equipment. Did people start wearing personal protective equipment or right when the pandemic started where you, you were? What kinds of things were people doing to try to be safe from the pandemic in Sudan? Well, Sudan was a, a challenging space. I know we as expatriates, we were just getting all of our information and news from the BBC and the New York Times and Al Jazeera and, you know, the wider world. Certainly listening to what was happening in New Zealand and Canada and everywhere that we were connected with. But in Sudan, the, the local people, their, their media that they were getting was from Arabic and they didn't have the same kind of level of information, it seemed like. So some of them thought it was a hoax. Some of them thought that in Sudan they would be immune to it or that the sun would burn it off or that it wouldn't affect them. 
but certainly, you know, the people who, who knew were taking it seriously. And I don't think that was that, that they were that different from the people of other parts of the world for that matter. But yeah, gradually the supermarket started changing the rules of how many people were allowed in at one time. And you'd see people wearing homemade masks and things like that. But in general, the big thing that the government of Sudan tried to do was to, first of all, just close the borders so that no one could come in from Italy or New York City or London or wherever. And, and secondly, to put a curfew in to, to make people stay at home after, I think after 1 p.m. in the afternoon, it was expected that people wouldn't um, be out and kind of eating in the street and gathering together. So that was their main thing, was that kind of curfew style. And how, how long were you and your family in Sudan after the borders had closed and the airports were shut down? Well, basically, we found out that the airports were shut in March. And funnily enough, at the time, our son had a, had a temperature and it had a cough. So there was no way we were going to try to, you know, scamper to the airport in a rush. He wasn't sick you know, he got better fairly quickly, but we weren't at that time willing to, you know, race into this kind of stampede to get out of the country. So we just said, hey, we, we've got everything we need. We had food, we had a, a lovely house, a lovely school community. So we just decided to, to stay put. So the airport finally opened up for charter flights around the end of May. And so we finished the school year as if we were, you know, teaching our normal jobs and had our kind of end of year assembly on Zoom around mid-June. And then shortly after that, there were some charter airplanes that, that let people get out to Europe. And so we booked a, a flight on, on the first one that really suited us to, to fly back to New Zealand. Obviously, there was a few more adventures after that. But yeah, it was about March till June that we were sheltering in place and, and working from home in Sudan, pretty much. What was it like on that airplane with other people from around the world leaving Sudan to get home? Was it, what was the atmosphere like? You know what? The, the airlines were, were really interesting because Sudan had been, the air, airport had been shut. The border was technically still shut when we left. So it was a charter plane just to get the people who had citizenship in other countries to fly out. We ended up flying after a bit of an adventure, we were booked to fly to Amsterdam and had a flight canceled at the last minute and then flew to Dubai instead in a kind of a whirlwind adventure. Um, but you know what? The, the flight was actually pretty calm. You know, everyone was patient. I think everyone knew that it wasn't going to be normal life, that it wasn't going to be just another, you know, international flight kind of thing that, you know, you'd be used to. But certainly the first flight we took to Dubai was quite normal. It was full. Uh, people were, were wearing masks, but everyone was trying to, you know, keep the distance as best they can and be a little bit subdued. But most people were just excited to get on a plane and to fly out because the airport had been shut for three months. I know one of the, the big things that people have been sharing with me, the challenges of the pandemic is being isolated from their families, grandparents, aunts and uncles, parents. Was that, how, how did that affect, affect you, your, your wife, your children and you when you were in, uh, in Sudan for those, for those three or four months? 
Do you know what we? You know, I'm a I'm a Canadian who's lived in New Zealand, you know, for 15 years now, and so I've my family in Canada, certainly in Ontario, has been used to, you know, being separate from us and having a computer screen to hang out with, and so we were we were going on our adventure. We were going to teach abroad and and have that that lifestyle of expatriates. We kind of signed up to be apart from family. We obviously were really looking forward to an amazing summertime trip back to Ontario, but for the most most part during the pandemic, we thought, yeah, we'll still be able to go to Ontario. It won't be any any big change. It just might mean that we wear a mask and you know don't go to a Blue Jays game kind of thing when we we're back in in Toronto. So we didn't feel any more isolated from family probably than normally. But what we did feel was just shut off from friends. You know, life, you know, especially with us, we've got three kids under the age of 10. Life is all about the playdates and hanging out with other kids and, you know, having that space and time to interact with other people. And so that's what we really missed. We felt isolated from our friends more so than family because family, we always knew we could catch up with on Facebook or Zoom or whatever we needed to. Interesting. And while you were in Sudan, what was there? Was there some things that stand out that were positive about the experience, and maybe some things that stand out as more of a challenge, uh, or any, and as well as when you got back to New Zealand? Yeah, well, probably the biggest positive was just you know family time. You know, we saw our boys, you know, grow and, and learn, and 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 we got to spend that time seeing them. You know struggling with mathematics or, or, or loving their reading or loving their writing or creative projects that they were doing for school. That was amazing to be able to shape that. So that was definitely a positive. And I think also just the possibly just seeing, hey, look how resilient and how, how re- self-reliant we are and look how we're getting on and we're still you know, friends with one another and, and looking out for one another and keeping well. The challenges were really around, I call it like the existential crisis of like, oh, well, what, what do we do now? Where do we, where do we plan to go for the next few years? Up until the end of May, we were planning to fly to Ontario to have a normal summer vacation uh, with family that we'd been looking forward to for years. And then all of a sudden found out that with New Zealand passports, our family would would have been at risk of being turned away from the border if they'd had a temperature or a cough when they landed in Ontario. So that gave us a real spook seeing that there was literally no air travel opportunities for us to get from where we were in Khartoum to Ontario that were going to be easy, let alone if we had a challenge like having a cough or having a temperature and then potentially not knowing where we were going to fly back to. So that was probably our biggest challenge was having to make the decision right at the last minute to change our flights from Ontario to, to come back to New Zealand where we knew we could be given entry and all of us would be allowed in no matter what. Um, Hi, how are you? There's Ethan, <laughs> Mr. Five-year-old, having a Hi, break Ethan. from his learning. Are you enjoying your time with your family during the pandemic? He's doing good. He's already back to his mathematics, I think. Oh, that's a great little cameo. <laughs> or back to his morning tea. Can you 
So you get back to New Zealand. I believe at this point in June, there was very few or no cases in New Zealand. What happened when you got back to New Zealand? Did you have to self-isolate for 14 days before you could integrate back into society? And what has it been like in New Zealand since? Because I know now at the end of August, we're seeing that the virus has, has re-emerged down on the island. What a handsome yeah, little son. Hey, bud. Yeah, Caleb just come in to have a, a break from his, his, his class. Hey, we got back to New Zealand, and New Zealand was in what is known as level one. Basically, around mid-May, New Zealand had all the cases under control and had closed the border and had gone back to normal. Schools were normal, shops, you know, weekend sporting activities, birthday parties, big, huge sporting matches, you know, rugby was back to normal. So basically, New Zealand was back to normal and was putting any returning travelers into a two-week quarantine. So we had to, to get back to New Zealand, we had to transit through Australia, which was doing the same thing of putting travelers into basically a, a hotel for two weeks where they were kept isolated from their friends and family and just in case they brought the virus back from where they were traveling from. And so, yeah, we, we landed in New Zealand and were escorted on a bus with other travelers, escorted by police to a hotel. The hotel was basically kind of a, a hospital quarantine center with nurses and defense force staff. So the Navy and the Air Force were giving employees to, to look after the security arrangements and the quarantine arrangements so that we didn't mix with other, other guests. And we had a, a double hotel room for two weeks that we couldn't leave. We could go out for walks, but we couldn't see our family. We couldn't go out to the shops. We were, yeah, just in a hotel room for two weeks, the five of us, kind of having a repeat of our experience in North Africa, but without the opportunity to go out shopping or go out for a walk or anything. So you do your two weeks, you get out, New Zealand is, there's no physical distancing, there's no need for masks, there's a belief that there's zero, zero cases, and then in August things have changed. Can you tell us kind of what the feeling is now and what has changed since July there? Yeah, well, we found it strange coming out of the, coming out of the hotel and just seeing how normal it was. That was probably our biggest culture shock of having been away from being away from home for a couple of, you know, a couple of months, you know, we were away for a full year to come home and not only see that all of our, you know, friends and family were, you know, still around, but also that they hadn't, didn't seem to have any of the effects of this COVID life that our friends and family and certainly in Canada and the UK and, you know, people we worked with who traveled around the world had these massive disruptions to their life. And, and then back in New Zealand, it was, it was life as normal. So we took a couple of weeks, you know, we, we were a bit uncomfortable going to church. You know, our church is the kind of place where everyone mixes and mingles. And we took a few weeks before we felt comfortable going back there with big crowds. And the same thing with shopping centers. It was, it was just a bit kind of unnerving to see how normal everyone was. And then knowing how much we'd gotten through and how seriously we had taken things to see things. And we, you know, intellectually, we knew that life was safe in New Zealand. But certainly for us, it took a little bit to kind of process that. 
and the things we wanted to do in New Zealand weren't shopping and concerts and rugby games, but you know, the things we wanted to do were, you know, to go outside and to go to the beach and to, to spend time with, with close friends and small groups and things like that. But yeah, it took us a, a few weeks, but then we got, we got used to it. Obviously it's a little bit different now. And so are people now physically distancing there and wearing masks? Yeah, so New Zealand's approach basically has been to, to put in place a really strict public health response to, to try to eradicate the virus. So rather than living with it like most places are and just trying to keep people who live in nursing homes safe, basically New Zealand has just said we will not accept any cases in the community. And so after the first cases were announced two weeks ago the government pretty much pretty much put news put auckland the city we live in into a full lockdown with all schools closed all gatherings shut down businesses only able to businesses are only able to operate if if customers aren't in the premises and if they if they are like at an essential business like a supermarket they have to wear masks so yeah, it's it's kind of like we've gone back to where Ontario was back in in March, and that was for yeah one one small cluster of cases. But you know the the political will to follow that strategy is really positive, and you know Kiwis are just doing doing what they got to do to to help out, really. Yeah, that's really interesting. I know here in Ontario, the virus has been politicized. Has it has it been politicized down where you are? Certainly not to the same level that, you know, what you've seen in the United States or the UK. But I think the reality is that the, the virus is a health concern, but the way governments manage it is a political concern. One of the things that New Zealand has got, probably similar to Ontario, is that people trust that the government will make good decisions. And so the government's decision to have an eradication strategy of, 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 of taking the entire country to have a pretty restrictive lockdown that affects their businesses and their, their day-to-day life. That decision has been pretty much followed and obeyed and, and people have you know, risen to the occasion of following the rules and then seen the, the positive outcomes that you know, New Zealand had 102 days with zero community spread cases. That there's no other country in the world that's had that long of time without without worrying that someone will catch it somewhere in their community. That's the it, entire country of 5 million people. It's really a testament to collective action and a model that I think the rest of the world can look, can look up to. I know it does help being on an island, but yeah, just to see everybody in the nation going in the same direction is really inspiring. I know here the direction from public health is to err on the side of caution, to wear masks so we don't transmit or receive the virus. And I, you know, it, it seems like it's such a small inconvenience for the fact that we might be able to save some lives and help help get this virus out of our community. Yeah, well, we've seen, you know, what every, you know, you fall, when you're abroad, you kind of follow the news from everywhere and, and just seeing how every country has handled things differently. And we knew that 
yeah, we were really proud of the New Zealand approach. And certainly when we were back, you know, our friends were going to their Saturday soccer match and, you know, cheering the sidelines and you could, you know, watch a rugby game in a stadium with 50,000 people and cheer and celebrate. You could have a birthday party, you could go to a restaurant. And so those kind of small things, even if things like international travel were affected or, you know, some of the economic challenges were very real for people. What you noticed was that the good things in life were worry-free. And I think that's what New Zealand really has seen as the biggest value of, of that strategy and that approach, but also just being together and, 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 and looking out for one another, really. Yeah, that it, New Zealand really is an example for the rest of us that, that this virus we could man, we can manage and hopefully get on top of. Uh, now, are, with the, are the so the schools in Auckland are closed, but are the schools in different regions still open? Yeah, so New Zealand's basically got the city of Auckland has been shut down. So there's roadblocks at the the edges of the not the you know the edge of the city, but kind of the edge of the region. If you thought of it as a a county, perhaps the county, similar to Ontario counties, the counties had this kind of restriction put on it, but the rest of the country has still been at a heightened alert level. It's just that that, that still lets them go to school. So students in, in other cities around the country are still at school. They're still able to have church services and, and events, but just with smaller groups. So they, they've still risen up in their their alert levels so that mm-hmm. I think the, the biggest gathering they can have is a hundred people at a church or at a concert or something like that. Uh, and obviously with that idea of, you know, signing in using a phone app to, to track your location and things like that. It seems, it seems that flexibility is one of the key principles in addressing this virus and and taking a regional approach, I know that's something that Ontario seems to Ontario has done as well, where some areas have gotten out of the lockdown and moved through the phases of reopening quicker than others. And so it's interesting to see that that regional approach based on flexibility is also happening in New Zealand. I would imagine it's probably happening around the world. Have they done anything in terms of reducing class sizes where you are? Well, what New Zealand did was they pretty much took the strategy approach of uh, realizing, okay, this eradication strategy is tough. They had a much more strict initial lockdown than any other country that I've heard of, where basically people were, were not allowed, right from the first week of the, the restrictions being put in place, people weren't allowed to travel. So no one was allowed to go to their holiday home no one was allowed to go to a beach or a park more than their local suburb. And, and that was pretty, pretty well policed and, and, and obeyed really like the, the people of New Zealand just said, okay, we're not allowed to, to travel to that, that lovely park across the city. So we just won't, we'll just go walk around our local neighborhood and we'll only go out for, for food and and medicine. And, And that was what happened. So that was so effective that they realized quickly that they had things under control. And it was kind of a miracle, to be honest. You know, apparently luck plays a big part in the, this thing as well. 
But when schools did open up, they didn't need to do any class size restrictions or anything like that because pretty much the virus had been totally controlled by that stage. It's, it's, it's interesting how a jurisdiction like New Zealand with the people all working together were able to get on top of this virus early. And now with a small amount of resurgence, the community is once again cooperating to eradicate it again. That's, I think that's a really positive example for the rest of the world. Now, do, do you and the kids, do you, your, do you and your family and the kids have any plans uh, for after the pandemic? Well, we've got a, an, an, a nine-year-old birthday coming up on September the 1st. So our oldest is pretty, pretty much hoping he can have a birthday party with a, a gathering of some of his friends from school. We're just hopeful to go back to work, you know, with, with us coming back, we've been getting casual teaching work. So, you know, we're wanting just to have a little bit of a semblance of a normal routine of going out of the house, having, you know, a purpose and a, a busyness of the days and that kind of thing. That's probably what we're, we're looking for more than anything. Just being able to interact with the people in your community again. Yeah, I think that's pretty much what people around the whole world are. Now, as we move forward in the pandemic, Eric, would it be okay if we touch back in with you over time just to see how, how the situation is there in New Zealand? Absolutely, Dave. You know, I'm always happy to, to chat with, um, with people in Ontario and for what it's worth to, to give the news from the other side of the world anytime. Well, I really appreciate you taking time away from uh, the family to talk to me and join us on the pandemic show. And please let, the, let your wife and the boys know that I can't wait, hopefully, to touch base with you all when you make it to Ontario. And if I'm ever down that way, I'd love to stop by. <laughs> awesome, Dave. Well, um, I'll make sure you know where we live once the airports are open, that is. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time, Eric. It was very insightful. No worries, Dave. All the best.